Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 285, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. You can learn all the skills in the world, math, business, writing, but the right mindset will always trump them all. It's the great unlock to all other skills. Success and happiness come down to one single component, and that's mindset. In order to achieve our goals in life, our mindset needs to match those aspirations. And this is exactly what I pack into my free weekly newsletter. As a free subscriber, you receive the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter once per week, where I break down step-by-step processes to master your mindset and practical growth tips. If you haven't subscribed, but you enjoy the content I drop on this podcast, then you're missing out. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe for free to the Mastering Your Mindset newsletter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. What's Elton John's real name? Now, there are three ways you might respond to that question. One, I have absolutely no idea. Two, Reginald Dwight, obviously. Three, I know that I know that. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't seem to remember it. This third reaction is a great example of a process that cognitive neuroscientists call metacognition. Now, you may be wondering, What the hell is metacognition? Well, cognition is thinking, and that prefix meta comes from the Greek for beyond. So metacognition is thinking that goes beyond thinking. It's having awareness of how and why we're thinking something at the same time that we're thinking it. 
Someone who thinks metacognitively is self-aware. Someone who doesn't just think things, but interrogates and reflects on what they think. In the 18th century, a Swedish botanist named Carl Linnaeus set himself a pretty big project. He wrote a book, Systema Natura, where he began labeling and categorizing every living thing. He wrote extensively long articles of all kinds of birds, insects, and plants. But when it came to humans, he felt that three Latin words were enough. Nose te ipsum. Now, what does it mean? Those that know themselves. It's been over 250 years since he wrote that. Our capacity for self-awareness is a key part of what makes us humans. It drives our actions to a powerful degree. And harnessed properly, it can help us achieve extraordinary things. For example, you've probably heard of freedivers. If not, freedivers are athletes who try to dive as deep underwater as possible without the use of any additional breathing devices like an oxygen tank. During free diving tournaments, these divers compete to reach the lowest depths, which is a pretty dangerous undertaking because if they go too deep, they risk passing out, sustaining lung injuries, and even drowning. Now, successful free divers don't just need physical stamina and a talent for diving. They rely on a high level of metacognitive awareness of their abilities and limits. If they underestimate their abilities, they'll stop before they need to, losing valuable inches from their final score. If they overshoot their limitations, the results can be catastrophic. Now, what's the difference between a good free diver and a great one? You guessed it, self-awareness. We're all self-aware to some degree. Our aptitude for metacognition is hardwired into our brains, and many key metacognitive processes are actually performed automatically. For example, if you've ever set a drink down on the table, missed the table by an inch or two, and reflectively caught your glass before it shatters on the floor, well, that was your ingrained metacognition at work. We perform a lot of simple tasks, like drinking a glass of water automatically. At the same time, we're constantly self-monitoring. For example, if a task doesn't progress as predicted, we instinctively self-correct. Now, we can build on the metacognitive instincts hardwired into our brain, and we can do so by cultivating more explicit metacognitive strategies. Research has shown that some people are more naturally prone to metacognition than others, and neuropsychologists call these people metacognitively gifted. Now, don't worry, because we're all capable of developing and refining our metacognitive skills. When we do, it can lead to enhanced learning outcomes, better decision-making, and a more flexible style of thinking. So, how can we develop and refine our metacognitive skills? Number one, think about how you learn. 
These days, we don't just stop learning the moment we graduate high school or college. In fact, we're far more likely to be lifelong learners, changing jobs and even careers multiple times in our lives, all while keeping up to date with advancing technology and research. We need to learn smarter, not harder. And that's where metacognition can give us the edge. Let's look at an example. Let's compare two law students, Jane and Steve. They're equally studious and equally proficient in legal theory, but Jane is more metacognitively gifted. One day, their professor announces a pop quiz scheduled for tomorrow. Steve methodically goes through his notes, but he has a lot of notes and not a lot of time to prepare. Jane Meanwhile, engages in her metacognitive mode. She scans the material, judges which topic she knows well and where she needs to brush up, and focuses her study time accordingly. And you guessed it, Jane aces the quiz. See, our educational outcomes don't only have to do with what we learn, but how we learn and where we apply our knowledge. In the 20th century, educators moved away from rote learning and started to pay attention to individuals' different learning styles. Theorists proposed that everyone had a preferred learning style. Some students were pictorial learners who responded best to visual information. Others were kinetic learners who learned through movement and so on. And here's something interesting. There's no evidence to show students who identify as pictorial learners actually perform worse at tasks geared towards, say, verbal or kinetic learners. But cognitive psychologists have observed that learners feel more confident learning in the style in which they identify. When it comes to how we learn, confidence is key. If we feel confident in our ability to perform a task, we're much more likely to pull it off. The psychologist Albert Bandura came up with a concept that nicely explains this. He calls it self-efficacy. Your self-efficacy is your overall belief in your talents and abilities. Learners with high self-efficacy tend to outperform their peers in a classroom context, but it goes further. High self-efficacy correlates with higher persistence as well as higher performance. In addition to performing well, students with high self-efficacy are less likely to give up when a task becomes tricky, which in turn enhances their performance. Now, it's possible to have too much of a good thing. An abundance of confidence can create a metacognition distortion. This is where we overestimate our knowledge and ability. Luckily, educational psychologists have come up with a surefire strategy to keep confidence in check. The best way for us to judge our own ability is to teach someone else. Explaining a concept or articulating a process to someone else can make our own knowledge and limits explicit. There's a phenomenon known as the illusion of explanatory depth. This is where we often think we know more than we actually do. For example, we might think that we know how a light bulb works, but 
When we try and explain it out loud to someone else, we might quickly realize that there are some crucial gaps in our understanding. And there's something else that's interesting. As humans, we have a weird quirk. We're much more likely to identify and correct mistakes when other people make them, even when we've unknowingly made that exact same mistake ourselves. This is why correcting another individual might be the best way for us to recognize our own mistakes. So, to be a successful lifelong learner, we should apply our metacognitive powers to how we learn. In other words, we should evaluate our abilities, cultivate confidence, and strategize to avoid metacognitive distortions. Number two, a decision might feel right. That doesn't mean it is. In 2012, Mark Linus was an environmental campaigner, and he passionately opposed genetically modified foods to the point where he even illegally destroyed GM crops. However, in 2013, just a year later, Mark stood up in front of the Oxford Farming Conference and stated that having engaged further with science, he now believes GM farming was crucial for sustainable agriculture. Now, because of this, he was no less a committed environmentalist, but on this issue, he had done a complete 180. Now, you're probably wondering, why is Mark's story so remarkable and how does it relate? Because changing our mind, particularly on an issue where we're passionate about it, isn't an easy thing to do. Whether we're taking a stand on GM crops, selecting an ice cream flavor, or choosing a long-term partner, if we enter into a decision with a high level of confidence, we're more likely to feel we've made the right decision. And after the decision is made, we double down with a dose of what's called confirmation bias. Essentially, once we've made a decision, our brain easily processes any further evidence that confirms our decision, but it's reluctant to process information that contradicts it. Now, of course, that's not a problem if we really did make the right decision. So, what's the catch then? We're very skilled at convincing ourselves we've made the right decision, even when we haven't. And there was a study that captured this very point. Psychologists conducted a little experiment across supermarkets. They set up small tables and offered two jam samples. Shoppers tasted both, and they were asked to choose their favorite. Then they were given what they thought was another taste of their preferred jam and asked to explain why they liked it. Those shoppers talked about flavor, texture, and ingredients without knowing that the second sample was, in fact, a spoonful of their non-preferred jam. Amazingly, they convinced themselves that the flavor they initially rejected was superior. And sure, maybe that's okay for a low-stakes decision about jam preference. However, when it comes to bigger decisions, like ending a relationship, or changing a job, or adopting a political stance, our tendency to dig our heels in can lead to painful 
consequences. So the question becomes, how do we find a balance between fixed and flexible thinking? Once again, it all comes down to confidence. When we approach a decision with a high level of confidence that we're correct, we tend to be assertive and efficient in our choices. Once they're made, we'll likely stick to them. When we approach a decision with a lower level of confidence in our choice, we're likely to make slower, more judicious decisions and more open to competing viewpoints and possibilities. So how does metacognition apply here? It comes down to being conscious of how confident we are in our choices. We shouldn't automatically override doubts or misgivings. We should use them as tools to stress test our decision. Of course, tapping into low confidence is a hard feat to pull off in a society like ours that values overconfidence. There's an interesting study that highlights this. This study showed video footage of people making decisions to an audience. The audience rated those people who chose quickly and confidently as more appealing and trustworthy than those who delayed, talking through their choice and weighing up their options. This was true even when the more confident subjects were clearly making poor choices. And there's the paradox. Cultivating low confidence can lead to better decision-making. But inspiring others to follow our lead requires an image of highly confident assertiveness. Now, to strike an optimal balance between projecting competence and making smart choices, we can try an old trick used by poker players. Bluff. Truly successful leaders project outward confidence in their choices in order to inspire and persuade others. But privately, they exercise caution and listen to their doubts. Number three, what can you do when metacognition goes wrong? In February 1987, the then 18-year-old Dante Booker was brought before a court on sexual assault charges. His victim confidently picked him out of a lineup, and her eyewitness testimony was convincing enough for the jury to find Booker guilty. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. He got what he deserved, right? Well, as DNA evidence indisputably proved in 2005, Booker was completely innocent. And it's not like this was an anomaly. The Innocence Project estimates that faulty eyewitness testimony has contributed to 70% of proven wrongful convictions in the U.S. The witness whose testimony convicted Booker was almost certainly not giving a deliberately false account. More likely, her metacognition had overcorrected, leading her to attribute accuracy, and certainly to a recollection that was in fact faulty and uncertain. When an eyewitness wrongfully convinces themselves that their memory of an event is accurate, somewhere along the lines, a metacognitive breakdown occurred. As Booker's case shows, these failures can have drastic consequences. So, the question is, how then can we safeguard against these kinds of metacognitive failings? Well, to start, we can try and remember the so-called 2-HBTI effect. Now, you're probably thinking, what the hell is that? 
It's just a fancy psychological term for an expression you've probably heard before. Two heads are better than one. Turns out that's not just a cliche statement. When we collaborate on decision making, we're far more likely to achieve accurate results. And an interesting study in the UK showed exactly this, where they asked individuals to observe pairs of flashes on a computer screen, then decide which flash was brighter. Then they paired those individuals anytime they couldn't agree. The pairs had to examine the evidence and come to a joint decision. Amazingly enough, even the lowest scoring pair performed better than the highest scoring individual. So what happens when someone isn't willing to engage with other people's viewpoints? Well, we all get a glimpse of this anytime we log into Twitter or Facebook. A skewed sense of self-awareness may contribute to the increasingly extreme political climate that we have going on at both ends of the spectrum too. That is so prevalent online nowadays. Interestingly, those who are most opinionated in their political beliefs, whether they identify as right-wing or left-wing, score low on tests for metacognitive aptitude. People with poor metacognition skills are more likely to believe that they are right and everyone else is wrong less likely to change their minds when presented with information that contradicts their beliefs, and less likely to search out new information on topics where they've already formed a strong opinion. If you've ever engaged with political discussions online and felt like you were yelling at a brick wall, well, in a metacognitive sense, you kind of were. So what's the lesson here? If you want to be a flexible an adaptive thinker, try to interact with people whose beliefs and opinions differ from yours. You don't have to agree with everything they say. Simply interacting with them will help boost your metacognitive sensitivity. This week's shout out is by Telemachus, who sent me a DM on our Discord group. I found Scott's podcast at the beginning of the week, and between then and now, I've done an entire 360 on my outlook on my job, my personal life, and my relationships, and feel like I'm actually starting to dig myself out of a four-year mental rut. For an opportunity to be next week's shout out, please leave an honest review on the podcast. Send me a DM on Facebook or Instagram. Who knows? You just might be the next shout out. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed my deep dive into the science of self-awareness. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all, and thanks so much for listening. The Motivated Mind is a legacy division.